Um, if you have your Bibles with you this morning, I invite you to turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2. We're, we're taking a one-week break from our study in Nehemiah uh, because today is a special day. It's a special day as, as, as we're going to partake in the Lord's table together here later in the service. And, and I want to take the appropriate time this morning to help prepare us for that. But, but not only that, today is a special day in a number of ways. I, I, I want you to see today as a day of worship. And we're able to worship the Lord in, in many different ways. We kicked off the service by seeing four brothers and sisters in Christ submit to believers' baptism. And that was awesome. Uh, we're going to take the Lord's Supper together. Uh, we're also going to have our prayer service tonight. We're going to worship Him in prayer together as a family by expressing our dependence upon Him. And then we're also praising Him in song all, all day, both this morning and this evening. But this morning, in our service, we are focusing around those two ordinances that the Lord has given the church. We, we don't have seven sacraments, as some like to teach. We have two ordinances. And these ordinances, they do go hand in hand, and I've put some information on your outline sheet just to illustrate that. And, and, and I say that they go hand in hand because baptism demonstrates our initial identification with Christ and His church. It demonstrates our initial identification. It's obviously an identification with Christ as it, as it pictures dying to our old life of sin, being raised again in the newness of life in the Spirit of God. But it's also an identification with his church because it's a public display with and to this specific local body. So as you watched each person get baptized this morning, not only were they identifying their life with Christ, they also identified their life with you, with all of us together. And then the Lord's Supper celebrates our continual identification with Christ and his church as it protects the ongoing fellowship we have with each other. And just for sake of illustration, this, this illustration certainly has its limitations as as all of them do, but just for sake of illustration, you could kind of think of baptism um, like a wedding ceremony in which we publicly declare that we belong to Jesus. And if you follow that imagery, that means the Lord's Supper is, is kind of like anniversary celebrations. So whether every month, every week, or as with most marriages every year or, or somewhere in between, you celebrate that life that you share with your spouse. And in doing so, you renew your commitment to each other. That's kind of the picture that's being represented with the Lord's Supper. That we do it as often as we do it, just as a renewal and a remembrance of, of, of what has already happened. And, and fellas, ask any wife in this room if it's important to remember your anniversary. Probably we'll hear a universal yes to, to that question. We need to remember. There are things that we need to remember. And, and in the very same way, we need to remember the Lord's Supper. It's important not to neglect that. In fact, this is really the only act of worship in the New Testament for which we have specific prescribed instructions. See, God not only tells us to do it, he tells us how to do it. And he tells us to do it for a very specific purpose. And that purpose is to remember. The purpose is to remember. 
Jesus told his disciples this very thing when they sat down for that last supper they had with him while he was physically on this earth. Luke chapter 22 verse 19 says, and he, speaking of Jesus, took bread and gave thanks and break it and gave unto them saying, this is my body which is given for you, this do in remembrance of me. And then as Paul was given that by God to, to distribute and to, 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 to instruct the church, he emphasized those same exact words. In 1 Corinthians 11, we'll, we'll be back here later on, but 1 Corinthians 11, verses 24 and 25, Paul says, And when he had given thanks, he broke it. He said, Take eat, this is my body, which is broken for you. This do in remembrance of me, and after the same manner. Also he took the cup when he had supped, saying, This cup is the New Testament in my blood. This do ye as oft as ye drink it in remembrance of me. So when it comes to this local church ordinance, we're told very specifically that we are to do it in order to remember Christ. Most of us in here already know that. That's nothing new. But what is it exactly that we're supposed to remember? What is it that Christ wants us to remember about himself? Because, I mean, listen, when it comes to Jesus, there's a long list of things to choose from. I mean, he had a pretty stellar record. But I think it's fairly clear from the verses that we just read that we are to specifically remember his sacrifice. That sacrifice he made for you and me on the cross of Calvary as his body was beaten, he was broken, his blood was shed. That's the title of this communion preparation sermon, Remembering His Sacrifice. And what I want to attempt to do this morning is simply paint a picture for you to help frame where I believe our minds should focus this morning. I want to help you remember. I mean, plus I've heard that a picture is worth a thousand words. And if that's true, that's going to save you about 10 minutes of me talking. So there's, you know, there's, there's value in that. But we're not here to do um, a deep study this morning. We're not going to look at anything particularly new. I have one goal. I have one goal today, and it's to get you to remember. It's to get you to remember some things and remember them in a way that will then motivate you. Motivate you to do something about it. And I'm going to try to paint this picture of remembrance using one verse in the book of 1 Peter. You should already be at 1 Peter chapter 2. And the one verse we're going to focus on is verse 24. But for sake of context, let's start reading in verse 21. 1 Peter chapter 2, starting in verse 21. The Bible says, For even hereunto were ye called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that we should follow his steps. Who did no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth, who when he was reviled, reviled not again. When he suffered, he threatened not, but committed himself to him that judgeth righteously. Verse 24. Who his own self bare our sins in his own body on the tree, that we being dead to sins should live unto righteousness, by whose stripes ye were healed. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we want to come to you this morning and on this time that we've set aside to remember you, to remember you through this ordinance that you've instructed us uh, to do. 
um, as, as, as frequently as we think is appropriate. And so, Lord, I pray that, that as we come before your table this morning together as one family, as one body, that we're able to clear our minds now to focus where we need to focus. Lord, there's, there's so many distractions that we deal with throughout the course of the week, but, but I pray that now that we're in here together this morning that you calm our minds, you calm our hearts, and you get us to focus on you, get us to focus on your word. Um, so, Lord, that we're prepared for what we're going to do together. Lord, it is such a serious thing. I think I'm afraid that we don't understand the seriousness of it and the importance of it. And so, so Lord, I pray that you help us do that, this, understand its significance through this remembrance of you today. Lord, I pray that everything is said is true to your word. I pray that it is glorifying and honoring to you, and I pray that your Holy Spirit will do the work that only he can do as your word goes forth, Lord, to change lives and, and to mold us into your image. Lord, we love you. We're so grateful for the time we have together. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, in First Peter, uh, chapter two, verse twenty-four, we're, we're clearly, we're obviously reading about the cross of Calvary. That is the tree that is mentioned that He bare our sins in His own body on the tree. And, and I want you to notice the specificity that the Holy Spirit uses in communication here, because in contrast to a tree that Galatians three thirteen mentions when talking about crucifixion in general. We see here that it is the tree, because it is not just any crucifixion or any cross that matters. It is only his crucifixion and his cross that matters. Colossians 2.14 says, blotting out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, which was contrary to us, and took it out of the way, nailing it to his cross. And this is important because his cross is the cross and the only cross that creates what we have here in the body of Christ. Ephesians 2.16 says that he might reconcile both unto God in one body. How? By the cross, having slain the enmity thereby. Because the cross is where Jesus died and where the sacrifice was made that I want you to remember today. And I want to draw your attention to three aspects of his sacrifice that we see in this one verse in 1 Peter 2, 24. And this is what I want us to remember this morning as we prepare to sit down at the Lord's table together here in a few minutes. And so first, I want you to remember the act. Remember the act. And quite simply... The act is the dying of the Lord Jesus Christ. We see that in the first phrase of, of 1 Peter 2.24, who his own self bear our sins in his own body on the tree. When Jesus went to the cross, he died for the sins of the world. He died for your sins and he died for my sins. And he he bare them, he bore them in himself. And the death of Jesus it was obviously a very unique death. His death was unlike any other death in human history. I mean, first of all, 
even though he was crucified, man only had part in his death. Man was the instrument. But it was only as part of the plan that the the father had laid out and that the son willingly accepted. Men was just the instrument that God used. Acts 2.23 says, Him being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, ye have taken and by wicked hands have crucified and slain. You see, this was all part of God's plan. And Jesus willingly participated. You need need to stay with me because I'm going somewhere with this. Jesus willingly participated in it. He said as much in John chapter 10, verses 17 and 18. Therefore doth my Father love me, because I lay down my life, that I might take it again. No man taketh it from me, but I lay it down myself. I have power to lay it down, and I have power to take it again. This commandment have I received of my Father. And this is important to understand when you consider what type of act it was. Because first of all, it was an act of suffering. We saw that in those lead-up verses of 1 Peter chapter 2. In verse 21 and again in verse 23, it talks about how he suffered. 1 Peter 3.18 says, For Christ also hath once suffered for sins. The just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but quickened by the Spirit. It says he suffered for sins. And we should never forget the fact that Jesus, while 100% God, was also 100% human. And in Jesus, his humanity was absolutely real. It is absolutely real. That means in his humanity, he felt the pain on that cross, just like you and me would have felt it. And he felt it as he bore our sins in his own body. And he did it purposely. He suffered purposely, even to the point that he wouldn't drink the vinegar mingled with gall that was offered to him in Matthew 27, 34. The verse says, they gave him vinegar to drink mingled with gall, and when he had tasted thereof, he would not drink. And that was a drink that was sort of an anesthetic. It, was, it acted similar to morphine does for us today. And it was given by the Romans, I mean, listen, one of the most brutal civilizations in the history of the world. It was given by them as an act of mercy to those suffering the excruciatingly painful death of crucifixion. There was no worse way to die. But as soon as Jesus tasted it and found out what it was, he wouldn't take it. He wouldn't take any of it because he did not want to mitigate the suffering that was part of the Father's plan. He chose willingly to endure the full agony. In, in the prophetic picture of Christ found in Isaiah 53, we'll, we'll come back to some of these verses later, but many of you are, are familiar with them. In that chapter, he's, he's called the man of sorrows. And he says, it says he's acquainted with grief. But, but here's the thing. As God, he didn't have to know grief. He could have said enough is enough. He could have stepped off the cross, but he did not. 
He remained to the end. Out of his love for us, grief's acquaintance. And I hope you caught what I just said because his willingness to suffer was due to the depths of his love. His love for the world, his love for me, his love for you. Now, if truth be told, few of us can bear pain. We're not, we're not the best at it, particularly us men. When we get sick, we don't, we don't always do well. Now, also the truth is, perhaps fewer of us still can bear misrepresentation, slander, ingratitude, and yet Christ throughout his life bore those and other sufferings because of his love. So shouldn't that make us love him back a little bit? As we think about just how much he must love us, will you try this morning to get your soul saturated with the love of Christ through this act of suffering for you? And I, and I ask the question knowing that for some of us, that's a difficult thing to do. I think we take for granted the suffering of Christ and the love of Christ. Because listen, if he didn't love us, he surely wouldn't have suffered like he did for us. And yet, we can process that intellectually. But I think for some reason, it just doesn't hit our heart. Because we're not motivated to action like we should. It doesn't change our life. So we can acknowledge it. We can assent to it intellectually. And yet, it never changes us. You know, it, 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 always, it amazes me, and, and yet it doesn't. The Bible talks about, you know, like Psalm 68 and other verses, that you know, God can move mountains. Literally. He certainly will when he comes back at his second coming. God can move mountains, and yet he can't move our cold hearts one stinking inch. We won't move. And yet he did all this, suffering, dying for us. And so folks sometimes wonder why the church grows so slowly. And I have to be honest with you, when I think about the shallow consecration to Christ that there is in the church, I don't wonder that much. Jesus was a man of sorrows. He was acquainted with grief. But many of his disciples who, pre who profess to be altogether his are in truth only living for themselves. Because while Christ was willing to suffer all for us, how much are we willing to suffer for him? And I, and I think it gets back to not understanding the love. Not understanding just how much love he has. How much love that comes for him. Paul tells us this, 2 Corinthians 5, verses 14 and 15. It says, for the love of Christ constraineth us. I mean, it holds us together. Because we thus judge that if one died for all, then we're all dead. And he that died for all, that they which live should not henceforth live unto themselves, but unto him which died for them and rose again. When you understand that love 
of Christ, then you understand that life isn't about yourself. It's about him living unto him which died for them and rose again. And that comes with a recognition of his suffering and the love that, that where it came from, which should result in us an increased gratefulness, which should lead to service. But there's another layer, layer to understanding his suffering because it wasn't only physical. It was mental. Because not only was it an act of suffering, secondly, it was an act of shame. Crucifixion was a brutal and shameful way to die. He was laughed at, mocked, spit on. You know, there's all sorts of paintings and the, the renderings of Jesus on the cross. And, and when you see all of them, you know, he's, he's, he's wearing a loincloth. And, and of course he is, you know, he should be. But, but we know that historically... Those suffering Roman crucifixion were placed on the cross nude. It was meant to be humiliating. It was, not, it was designed to not only bring pain, but also bring shame. Hebrews 12.2 says, Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame, and is sit down at the right hand of the throne of God. In Isaiah 50, verse 6, another prophetic picture of Christ on the cross says, I gave my back to the smiters and my cheeks to them that plucked off the hair. I hid not my face from shame and spitting. Lamentations 1.12, yet another prophetic picture of Christ on the cross. says, is it nothing to you, all ye that pass by? Behold and see if there be any sorrow like unto my sorrow which is done unto me, wherewith the Lord hath afflicted me in the day of his fierce anger, as his wrath was poured out. And historically, Lamentations 1.12 is a verse dealing with Jerusalem's appeal during her destruction, time of captivity. But prophetically, Jerusalem prefigures, pictures Christ. And that language prophetically points to the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross. And Jeremiah prophesied that folks would just pass him by, not even considering his sorrow and shame. And of course, that's exactly what happened when Jesus was actually on the cross. We read in Matthew 27, 39, and they that passed by reviled him, wagging their heads. You see, it was nothing to them, all them that passed by. Is it nothing to you, all ye that pass by? They didn't even consider his suffering and his shame. And as we're using today as a day of remembrance, let me ask you, how about you? Is it nothing to you? Is the sorrow Jesus experienced on the cross as a man of sorrows, as his father turned his back on him, for us, is it nothing to you? Do you just pass by it as it's brought to your remembrance? I, I want you to allow yourself to, to feel it this morning. Like I said, I have one goal, 
I'm trying to paint a picture. And I want you to feel it as we prepare our hearts and minds for the Lord's Supper. Don't pass by it. Allow yourself this morning to feel the heaviness of it. But you don't have to dwell in the sadness and the guilt. Dwell in the thankfulness. Dwell in the gratitude. Because it wasn't only an act of suffering and an act of shame, it was also an act of substitution. He bore our sins because we couldn't. And as the only worthy substitute, Jesus took our sins and paid the price for them. You see, sin is a disease that has afflicted the human race, every single one of us. And, and this fact that we needed the substitution, really, it spells out for us who we really are and what we're really like. Because, you know, many of us, we, we think of ourselves as decent people. You know, maybe even good people. I mean, we're not perfect, but there are certainly worse people out there. But, but listen, when we come to understand the, the substitution, substitutionary, that's the word. It took me a second. The substitutionary necessity of Jesus' death. It was necessary. Not one of us could pay for our own sins except for paying for them in eternity in hell. So there was a necessity for his substitution. And when you consider that and include yourself in that, you can begin to grasp, grasp who you really are. And that there is evil in us. And you begin to see that sin is a disease that's infiltrated my life. Not just other people's lives. It's infiltrated mine. So thank the Lord for his love and his grace and his willingness to go to the cross. Thank you, Jesus. Romans 5, verses 6 through 8, For when we were yet without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet peradventure for a good man some would even dare to die. But God commendeth his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And listen, that right there is the only reason you and me will, will not be in hell. It's the only reason why you and I won't be in hell. And, but you have to have accepted his sacrifice as a substitution for your own. This is fact described 2 Corinthians 5.21. For he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Through him. Romans 8, verses 1 through 3, There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. For the law of the Spirit of life is Christ, in Christ Jesus hath made me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do, in that it was weak to the flesh, God sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin, condemned sin in the flesh. Man, praise the Lord for what Jesus did. Thank you. Because listen, Jesus did not die as a martyr. He died as a savior. And I want you to remember that this morning. I want you to remember the act that he did for us because of his love 
for us. And if you'll allow yourself to dwell in that place for a while, again, not, not in a of, of guilt, not in a place of, of guilt and sadness. I mean, sure, that's, that's a natural response, but don't stay there. Move to thanksgiving for what he did. And stay in that place is going to get you better prepared to understand and remember the second aspect of Jesus' sacrifice that we see in 1 Peter 2.24. Because we also need to remember the aim. And this gets to the purpose of the act. Because I think it's important for us to consider what it was Christ was aiming to do. And we see that in the second phrase of, our, of, of 1 Peter 2.24, who his own self bear our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, being dead to sins, should live unto righteousness. You see, Jesus endured the cross for our salvation. And that's obviously not a profound statement. Nearly everyone in here is quite aware of that fact. But I want you to notice that the phrase we just read in 1 Peter 2.24 is, is written in the present tense. And so it's about salvation, of course, but not only a future salvation, also a present salvation. God's work wasn't only for eternity, but also for today. He died to save us from our sins now. And that's because God's desire for your salvation isn't just that you'll spend eternity in heaven with him. You know, salvation isn't only, it isn't just an IOU that you cash in on death. No, he wants to change you even before you get to heaven. He wants you to have spiritual life here, an abundant life according to John 10.10. 10. And listen, I know for some of you, you don't even understand how that's possible but the bible says it is so so believe it titus 2 verses 11 and 12 says for the grace of god that bringeth salvation hath appeared unto all men teaching us this is what it's teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust we should live soberly righteously and godly when in this present world so it now that's what salvation can and should do for you. It should give you the victory today. And of course, that's a, that doesn't mean we'll be perfect. While on this earth, we won't be. We, we live in this flesh. We'll always be dealing with that while we're here. But we can live a life free of sin, free from its slavery and bondage. That's what Romans 6 says, at least. Verses 12 through 14 let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body, that ye should obey it in the lust thereof. Neither yield ye your members as instruments of unrighteousness unto sin, but yield yourselves unto God as those that are alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness unto God. For sin shall not have dominion over you, for you're not under the law, but under grace. If you are saved this morning, sin does not have dominion over you anymore. So why do you keep sinning? What sense does that make? Peter said he saved us so that we would be dead to sins but live under righteousness. We're to walk in newness of life. We should now be alive to the things of God, to the word of God, to the people of God. 
We should desire those things more than we desire sin. Because that's how God set it up. Don't flip the script back around and go back to the very things that God pulled you out of. You don't have to do that. Jesus won the victory. And that brings us to the third aspect of his sacrifice that I want us to remember. Because lastly, we need to remember the accomplishment. Remember the accomplishment. Look at 1 Peter 1, or 1 Peter 2.24 one more time. Who his own self bear our sins and his own body on, on the tree, that we being dead to sins should live unto righteousness by whose stripes ye were healed. Listen, if you have accepted the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross, then you have been healed. Because he accomplished what he set out to do. And here, Peter's referencing Isaiah 53 that I, I mentioned earlier. And in that chapter, Isaiah 53 verse 5 says, But he was wounded for our transgressions, he was bruised for our iniquities, the chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. And, and, and that verse isn't referring to physical healing today as some charismatics assert. Not today, not for the church. Now, they did refer to that before the crucifixion as a sign to Israel that Jesus was a Messiah. That's why Jesus and his disciples came in with a healing ministry. But that changed when he was crucified and the kingdom of heaven was set aside for a time. But what is true, even for us today, is that in his atonement comes spiritual healing. With his stripes, we are absolutely healed, spiritually. And he did that on the cross. He did that on that tree as he bled and died as the perfect sacrifice. And he signified it by saying that he accomplished exactly what he set out to do. Look at his dying words in John 19.30. When Jesus therefore had received the vinegar, not mixed with gall, the vinegar on its own. When he had received the vinegar, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up the ghost. And that phrase, it is finished, is, it's one that you, know, you might hear us reference a lot. Even though it's, this is the only verse that it's found in. It's, it's an accounting term that, that means paid in full. So when Jesus uttered those words, he was declaring the debt owed to his father was wiped away completely and forever for those that would place their faith in him. It's such an important saying by Jesus. It is finished. He accomplished what he set out to do. But let me submit to you this morning that it has even deeper meaning. It certainly means what I described, but it also means that he was finished being a man of sorrows, as Isaiah 53 describes him. And I'm not saying that, that we still don't treat him in a way that makes him sorrowful. Because in one sense, he still gets spit on and reviled and passed by every day. But what I mean is that there will never again come a time where he has to endure the physical pain and torment that he faced at his first coming. You see, the fact that he is still rejected of men is a sign of his grace. Because we live in the age of grace where the last sins haven't been judged yet. We live in a time of divine forbearance. 
That means God is holding back his wrath. And the punishment for sin that could be handed out immediately is often delayed. You see, people ask all the time, why did God allow that? Or how could a loving God let that go on? And the answer that the Bible screams out is he won't. He ultimately will not because when his kingdom comes, his will is done. He will defeat the enemy. He will pour out his wrath upon all those that reject his free grace offering today. And in this thousand year millennial reign, he will rule with the rod of iron. And let me tell you, that day isn't far away. That's why it's so important for you to recognize his accomplishment on the cross today. So that you won't be ashamed when you meet him face to face. Because at the end of the day, this is what this all boils down to. Understanding and appreciating his worthiness and his willingness to suffer all. Remember his sacrifice and allowing yourself to appreciate him because of it and all that he did. And oh my, all that he's going to do. You need to understand and you need to just believe how wonderful he is, man. And that's the Bible's conclusion of Jesus. So it needs to be ours, but not just in word, but in deed too. Don't express verbally how, he, how wonderful he is if, if your actions don't express it as well. You know, it, it reminds me of, you know, what, you know, what Mark Trotter used to say, right? You know, as, as Christians, we don't tell lies, we sing them. And listen to those words that, that we sing. And ask yourself how true they are of you. Listen, he's wonderful, man. And that fact, you grasp it and believe it, it should absolutely dictate the way you live. And, and he's so wonderful, the Bible says it's one of his names. It's Isaiah 9, 6. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful. Counselor the mighty God, the everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. And listen, there are countless things in this world that are called by names that do not belong to them. We give names and we place adjectives on, on folks in sports or movies like stars, or we say their performance was amazing or incredible or wonderful. Well, you just need to know that, that Christ is called wonderful simply because he is so. God the Father never gave his son a name which he did not deserve. And there's no flattery there. It's just the simple name that he deserves. Listen, he, that wonderful Savior became the man of sorrows so that we could have a relationship with him. And I'll never pretend to understand all of it. But man, I, I can praise him for it. I can sing, hallelujah, what a savior. And then I can live my life accordingly. That I can do. And listen, I venture to say that all the wonders that you have ever seen pale in comparison to the wonderfulness of Christ. I hope you see it that way. 
and his wonderfulness shine no brighter than he was suffering his darkest day as a sacrifice for you and me. And the fact that he had borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, was wounded for our transgressions, and endured stripes for our healing, man, that's what makes him wonderful. Who else would be willing to do that? So remember that and remember him because that will prepare you for the Lord's Supper. And then what's after? It will prepare you to walk out those doors and live your life for his glory. And now as we transition to actually partaking in this ordinance with our minds centered where they need to be centered, I want to go back and read Paul's full instruction of the Lord's Supper found in 1 Corinthians 11, verses 23 through 30. We read a couple verses in the introduction, but I want to read all of it. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty three, starting there, Paul says, For I have received of the Lord that which also I delivered unto you, that the Lord Jesus, the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat, this is my body, which is broken for you, this do in remembrance of me. After the same manner also he took the cup, and when he had supped, saying, This cup is the New Testament of my blood, this do ye as oft as ye drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as ye eat this bread and drink this cup, ye do show the Lord's death till he come. For for whosoever shall eat this bread and drink this cup of the Lord unworthily shall be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of that bread and drink of that cup. For he that eateth and drinketh unworthily eateth and drinketh damnation to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. For this cause many are weak and sickly among you, and many sleep. You see, as we've been talking about all morning, today's a day to remember. And that remembrance should naturally lead to examination. Examination of where you're at with the Lord. Are you living a life that's glorifying Him? Have you, have you taken for granted the act? Do you appreciate the accomplishment? Or have you, you just passed it by? And you're living your life for yourself. You know, this ordinance is to keep you focused where you need to be focused. So you should examine yourself and then get things right if you're not right. That's why it says in, in, in verse 28, let a man examine himself and so let him eat of the bread and drink of that cup. You know, it's not God's intention for you to say, man, I'm not, I'm not living my life right, so I shouldn't partake in the Lord's Supper. No, that's not what God's saying at all. What God is saying is, you should examine yourself, and if you come to the conclusion that you're not living your life right, you should get things right, and then partake in the Lord's Supper. That's, that's the goal. So you should do that now, if you're not living life the way God intends for you. This ordinance is to keep us focused where we need to be focused, because none of us should be able to go more than a few months without with being out of fellowship with the Lord or, or, or out of fellowship with another believer in Christ. The Lord's Supper should prompt you to get things right. It's meant to help believers in Christ stay focused on Him in the midst of a distracting world. So if there was a time in your life where you saw that you were a sinner, you decided to trust Jesus for eternal life and prayed and asked God to save you, and you're old enough and understand enough to examine yourself in the faith, then you're welcome to partake in this communion with us. Now, if you don't meet those requirements, well, this ordinance isn't for you. Now, 
If you take it anyway, you know, what will happen? Well, nothing. Nothing will happen, but that's, that's the point. It doesn't have the same significance for you that God intended. But if you are saved, then this is the ordinance that Jesus uses to get us to remember the fact that we are feeding on him. That he is to be our sustenance of life and sufficiency. Psalm 34, 8, O taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man that trusteth in him. But if you don't trust him, you won't know that he is able to sustain you in all areas of life. So let's remember him today, remember his sacrifice, all that he has done, and then choose to live our lives through him. At this time, I'd, I'd like the men to come up and the worship team, the men that are serving and the worship team to go ahead and, and, and come up and, and get set. We can go ahead and start to serve the body and the worship team's getting set up. And in just a second, you're going to receive the elements that the men are serving. And as you do, just, just please hold on to it until I give further instruction. I will tell you when to eat and, and when to drink so we can partake of the bread and the juice as one together to express our unity in Christ together. But for now, this is your time for personal examination and personal confession to the Lord. If you have something to get right with the Lord, this is your time to do just that. So let's take a moment and let's pause and, and let's spend some time with the Lord before we partake in this together.